0: Welcome to the Canadian Real Estate Investor, where hosts Daniel Foch and Nick Hill navigate the market and provide the tools and insights to build your real estate portfolio. Okay, welcome back to another episode of the Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast. My name is Daniel Foch. I am a real estate broker with Rare Real Estate and I'm joined here. I guess I'm also a real estate investor.
1: It's kind of I'm joined here by
0: mention. a friend of mine who is also a real estate investor and his name is Nick Hill.
1: Thank you, Dan, real estate investor, mortgage agent, and lucky enough to be the co-host of the biggest and best Canadian real estate podcast in the country. Thanks for uh, thanks for joining us today,
0: everybody. Yeah, we got a great episode for you today. It's a little bit different. I think we're going to be talking a little bit more know, like economic theory, a little bit about market cycles, political economy, socioeconomics, and where canada's housing economy could ultimately be heading sort of one potential end game or outcome of of the direction that we're currently on
1: yeah love that we talk a lot about what we're going to, we have talked a lot about what we're going to discuss in this episode in other episodes but we've never done a full deep dive so i'm excited to get into it and share with everybody what late stage capitalism late stage housing cycle and all that kind of good stuff is but before we do that Let's take a second to look at this wonderful review. My wife and I are coming late to purchasing a home, late in life and late in the low interest rate frenzy. We want to buy a home and although our range is almost non-existent under 300k, listening to this podcast has been so great. We talked with a friend about paperwork she had to sign when purchasing her first home and talked with a mortgage broker, both writing furious notes that didn't really mean anything to us. As I've made my way through almost every episode, buying a home is becoming more clear, at least in theory. I've listened to the terminology, stress test and variable versus fixed episodes several times. I tried listening to a couple of other Canadian real estate podcasts and they were too jokey and not to the point. Wow. So... People like that we don't joke, Dan, because, I mean, we're really funny. We do stand up on the weekends, but we keep them very separate from our, <laughs> our podcast here. These guys are fun to listen to, but also straight to the point. From their professionalism, you know you can trust what they are saying. Anyone looking for more understanding about real estate, buying property, or investing, or buying a home in Canada should listen to these guys. All the best to them. Well, thank you so much.
0: Man, that was heartwarming, honestly, to, to listen to. And I do hope they'll find something during this bear market that we're seeing. I'm not exactly sure what market it is in, but that is a tough price range for sure. I mean, there's only a few markets in Canada where that exists, but hopefully, you know, during the downturn, they'll be able to, uh, to get a, a purchase done and you'll have to let us know. Uh, thank you to Miles of Prairies. Hopefully you give us an update on, on whether or not you and your wife were able to purchase something. Um, and thanks for brightening our days with the, that beautiful compliment, honestly. And if you, our listeners, other listeners are feeling charitable, and want to make somebody's day.
1: You can actually make two people's days here, guys.
0: If if you want to make two people's day here, folks, it's as easy as just donating one written word. No money, just a written word
1: (laughs) on Apple Podcasts. We will then share that review of the podcast to the thousands and thousands of listeners we have across the country, and maybe it'll make it their day too.
0: Talk about a return on investment. It is truly a gift that keeps on giving. Okay, so... (laughs) Today, we're going to be talking about uh, declining homeownership, some bad things, declining homeownership, urban economics, and late capitalism. And I also, um, I do want to mention... Uh, we kind of are touching on that because I mentioned, I used the word donate above. We're not going to ask you to donate anything, but on the late stage capitalism thing, there's a, a funny thing that comes up from this subreddit that is about celebrities asking people to donate for stuff, but I digress. So today, declining homeownership, urban economics, and late capitalism. Can I just... Uh, yes, yes, you can do a dictionary if you want, but this whole episode is going to be a little bit of a dictionary, I think, ooh, anyway.
1: I like it. Okay, so let's start with urban economics, which studies the economics of cities and the many policies and factors that determine city structure and performance, such as land use restrictions, local labor markets, agglomeration economics, trade, transportation, and
0: infrastructure. Sounds like eighty percent of those things need defining as well, but <laughs> we'll get there. Um, this isn't this is an episode by request, by the way. We've had a lot of people ask if we can elaborate on some of the things that we, what we mean when we say some of the things like late stage in the house, or we're late in a housing cycle, or other economic platitudes associated with Canadian housing crisis, like credit cycles and late stage capitalists.
1: Why does it all sound so so dirty? I feel like I just stepped into the bowels of, of Reddit with a lot of these topics.
0: <laughs> well, that's actually there is a, literally a subreddit called Late Stage Capitalism, and if you you know go on Reddit, you've probably seen it pop up on the front page, and it is kind of like what you just
1: described—bowel-ish, like bowly, maybe bowel-esque. Yeah, I, think
0: the, I think the proper pronunciation is bowel-esque, like that burlesque <laughs> movie. But yeah, it's it is one of those subreddits.
1: Um, okay, I'm actually going to go through a couple of their top posts that are you know there's there's definitely some decently funny ones here. Dan, start us off.
0: So I have, a, I have a thousand Mars bars in my fridge, and my mate has one in his, and I pressured him into giving his to a homeless person. This is how celebrity charity appeals work.
1: <laughs> how long until GoFundMe
0: is our nation's leading healthcare provider? Oof, that one hurts. <laughs> uh, Hey, remember when the Panama Papers came out and revealed that all the rich people and politicians in the world were part of an enormous conspiracy to dodge taxes and hoard stolen wealth in offshore accounts and literally nothing happened? You know,
1: I, I do remember the Panama Papers. You know the one the one that hurt? I, I gotta say Rush Hour Two, then the, the, all three of the Rush Hours are like some of my favorite movies. And my man Jackie Chan was involved in the Panama Papers, so come on, Jackie. Uh, and in true Super Bowl fashion, Budweiser just spent five million on a commercial to brag about donating a hundred thousand dollars worth of water. That one's good.
0: So, so I guess the bowel part that we were mentioning from the from the bowels of Reddit is basically just them pooping on capitalism. <laughs> I guess
1: kinda, yeah. But to be fair, it is kind of funny, and I mean, you know, dark comedy for sure. But basically, these people are just poking fun at the great and growing economic divide and and socioeconomic divide that I think we're seeing happening in the world. So obviously, I'm going to define a little bit of that for you. So per Wikipedia, late capitalism, late stage capitalism or end stage capitalism is a term first used by uh, print German economist Werner Sombart around the 20th century. In the late 2010s, the term began to be used in both the United States and Canada to refer to perceived absurdities, contradictions, crises, injustices, inequalities, and exploration created by modern business development.
0: Yeah, so you hear a lot about this stuff when people are talking about COVID economic response and gaps between millennial and now, especially Gen Z wealth creation versus baby boomers or erasure of the middle class. It's these are things that you know are becoming more and more. Uh, parts of pop culture becoming cultural norms Mm -hmm. as we you know as the the people who are contributing to the content world our generation and ones younger than us are starting to have amplified voices um Werner Sombart the guy that you mentioned also coined the term creative destruction which is basically the concept of market cycles it sounds a little it sounds like a maybe like a um Metallica (laughs) album or something but uh but um it's a concept, basically, which, you know, has been most redi- readily identified with, um, Schumpeter, who's an Austrian board economist. Uh, and he, th- this stuff, a lot of this, all of this, like, economic concept comes from, um, Karl Marx and Marxism, which is crazy because that's, like, a lot of the anti-capitalist stuff. But, I mean, the guy did have some, some excellent analyses of, of why different political systems function and, and, re- uh, produce the results that they, they they did, um, and it was popular as a, as a theory of basically economic innovation and in a business cycle. It's all, all, often also called Schumpeter's Gale, which is that other econo- uh, economist that I was mentioning. And it basically describes the process of industrial mutation that continuously revolutionizes from the economic structure from within. So, basically, c- constantly destroying the old system and creating a new one at the same time. Um, and the concept refers more broadly to the linked processes of accumulation and annihilation of wealth under capitalism.
1: Annihilation of wealth. That doesn't sound good. According to the conversation.com, the term late capitalism regained relevance not so long ago in 1991 when literary critic Frederick Jameson published postmodernism or the cultural logic of late capitalism. In Jameson's account, late capitalism is characterized by a globalized post-industrial economy where everything, not just material resources and products, but also immaterial dimensions such as the arts and lifestyle activities become commodified and consumable. Starting to sound a little familiar. In this capitalist stage, we see innovation for the sake of innovation, a superficial projected image of self via celebrities or influencers channeled through social media, so on and so forth. In this time, whatever societal changes that emerge are quickly transformed into products for exchange. Unlike those who celebrate postmodernism as replete with irony and transgression, Jameson considers it to be a non-threatening feature of the capitalist system in contemporary societies. Do we want to pause there and unpack yeah. that for a second? Because I feel like that was... That was a lot.
0: Yeah, it's yeah, it's pretty wordy. I mean, the reality is, I I think that you know most people who are maybe "critical" is even the wrong word, but just thinking about you know capitalism and whether or not it's working properly. And I think you know you would argue, like I'm personally, as far as I know, I'm pretty decent fan of, of capitalism, but it seems like it's distributing gradually distributing assets or resources. Uh, in a less and less efficient manner at least that's based on a lot of what, what we're hearing from a lot of market participants who feel marginalized who feel pushed out of the, the housing market as an example for um you know the past several years and you know if they weren't pushed out by price acceleration over the past 5 years then they're now they're pushed out by interest rates over the over the you know in in present day and so you know you're getting this and most of the things that we just mentioned those themes kind of sound pretty bang on for present day from my perspective yeah.
1: to be honest so yeah i mean look at the especially commodit- commoditizing yeah, of you know arts and lifestyle activities especially the superficial projected image uh self image of of celebrities and and you know influencers real estate influencers agents everyone that now immediately feels the need to become an influencer and to project themselves in a certain type of way to the
0: world. You tell me that getting a real estate license isn't a license to become an influencer. <laughs> You're supposed to sell real so, estate with it. You, you know, influencing is the number one but, but it's yeah. influencing yeah. people it's just influencing people to buy yeah. real estate it becomes especially clear the commoditization part becomes especially clear in Canada when, you know cuz a lot of these things are broad global concepts right but in Canada it becomes especially clear when you think about it in regards to the housing market and how housing has been built into a commodi- commodified consumer product through rental housing and for those of us who are investors we want to be people who are providing those products right so and what what that ultimately ends up with is i mean in in you kind of have to you know, imagine or look at, like, for those of you who traveled to places like Europe as an example, those, those housing markets, they don't like, people aren't buying and selling homes 10 times in their lifetime in, in Switzerland or Germany or whatever it is. You know, it's not like this national sport like Canada and the US where everybody's got is a realtor you know like they don't even really know what like it's just a job in in a lot of those countries a lot of parts of Europe and different places on earth it's really only in a lot of these places that are fast growing that do have high immigration that do have high economic growth where you go through this period in which you can go through all of that switching reallocation of assets and, and then eventually that kind of dies out. Like you don't see people again, spending only three years on average or five, one mortgage term in a house and climbing the housing ladder and buying and selling rental properties. Like people are doing other things with their capital, maybe better things with their capital, whatever it is. And so if you, and, and the easiest way to really look at this is looking at countries in the world by home ownership rate. And this is what I, this is when I, when I think about where Canada is in its life cycle as a country, right? Where we are with. The popularity to immigrants, right? People wanting to move here, where we are with our our f- present and future economic growth. Like we know, the OECD has Canada as one of the slowest growing uh, advanced economies over the next four decades. I think it is, or maybe it's the next decade. I can't remember what it is, but I think it's the next decade. So can- they expect Canada to have experienced the slowest uh, GDP growth and also the worst GDP growth per capita. Because we're bringing in a lot of people, and we've kind of already tapped out a lot of those things that we can that we could do, right? So you're late in the stage of what you're able to accomplish as a, as a as a country by comparison to emerging markets, as an example, which are emerging. <laughs> so if you look at countries in the world by home ownership rate, uh, everyone above us on the list of countries that would be would have higher home ownership rates would be more considered to be emerging markets right do you want to read me that list and then I'll I'll do kind of Canada Yeah below? no this
1: is this is fascinating so again these are emerging markets these are countries where the percentage of people that own homes is much higher than Canada in some cases the first one being a staggering 96.1% of people own homes in Romania Hungary is not so far off at 91.3%. Cuba, 90% of the people there own homes. China, almost 90% at 89.68%. you would think they'd round that one up, China. Uh, India, another massive popu- uh, population, 86.6%. Norway, surprising, doesn't seem to fit in with the rest of them but 80% of Norway 80% of Norwegians own home on their homes and Spain 76.2 Brazil Portugal Iceland and Italy are all in those high 70s. So though I mean at 96.1% Romania. Wow, well done. Yeah. Dan, let's go yeah. through the list here because this this gets fascinating and you'll start to you know, uh, do with what you do with it, what you will with this information. But this does this does present some very interesting data when you look at a country like Romania with ninety six percent home ownership rate, and then we'll start to explore some of the countries that have a lot less home ownership rate. Dan, start us off with uh, with this list here.
0: Yeah, and I think it it becomes apparent what Canada could be heading for. You know, like even the Spain's, Portugal's, their role in. Europe, as an example, is much different than the role that Canada would have in North America. Um, you know, when you see the list below us, I think I, my guess would be Canada is trying politically to become and and, and you know uh, just their role in the global economy is trying to become more like the countries that are below us, so that have lower home ownership rates than the ones above us um and we know based on the conversation the episode that we did recently with um Statistics Canada and just information that we have from Statistics Canada that home ownership rates are in decline in Canada not massively but they are right in in most country or in most provinces they're they're on the decline so we're seeing more people renting fewer people owning homes so we have Canada at 68.5% of people own homes Australia is 66%, United States is 65%, New Zealand is 64%, Sweden 64, France 64, United Kingdom 63, Japan 61, Denmark 60, South Korea 56, Austria 55, Germany 51.1, Switzerland 41%, uh, the UAE, 28%, Nigeria, 25%, Hong Kong, 22.1%. And Hong Kong, well known for being, you know, one of those world class cities where it's very, I mean, the whole country is sort of a world class city, but a lot of people, um, you know, moving their upward mobility, mm-hmm. you know, global finance hub. And, uh, but also appears on the, uh, the UBS bubble index rel- relatively often alongside Canada, you know, Canada's two, Unaffordable cities or bubbly cities, Mm -hmm. uh, Vancouver and Toronto. So when I talk about late stage housing, not to be confused with, uh, you know, a late cycle, like where we are in a housing cycle. And we're going to go through what we, like what all of the theory behind these cycles is. Um, I'm talking about sort of late stage capitalist countries that have made it further in their evolution of capitalism. And I'm always a little reluctant to dive too far into anything ideologically that comes after Marxism, which we mentioned earlier. You know, Karl Marx came up with a lot of this political theory, but you know, I think that the stuff that you were mentioning before finished up pretty lightheartedly and admitting that all, all of this is relatively non-threatening parts of the, um, the economy. And the Marxiness of it does politicize it just enough to move over nicely to an idea of something called the political business cycle. So politics piece, uh, which we'll get to after. But before I do that, um, Maybe here's a – I was just going to see if you could read this, but um, here's a list of things that you might see in a capitalist system that isn't working properly. For example, you know that could be said it's not distributing assets properly. Do you want to read these? Yeah, things? sure. And
1: the next one we have here is housing affordability issues causing things like fraud for shelter. Which actually, Dan, you and I were just on a call today, uh, with, with Reuven from Deeded, which we're gonna do some, some work with. So stay tuned for Deeded, guys. It's an incredible platform. Um, Reuven has access to top, uh, lawyers across the country. And he is telling us that all the stuff that we're hearing in the news, and, and, you know, we, we touched on this in our last episode, how to protect yourself from, Uh, from mortgage and title fraud. Apparently we are only hearing about 5%, which is crazy that the media isn't, you know, exploding a story like this more. Um, but if this is one of the red flags for, uh, you know, a late stage, then I'd say we're, we're, we're deep into this one because this is, this is happening more and more.
0: It is such an interesting thing to mention too, because one of the things that makes us so compelling to a lot of countries, to people who want to, to bring capital here or to immigrate here is the strength of our land registry system, right? We have right. this, um, imperial British land registry system that, it, you know, has historically been said to be very reliable. People can't steal land from one another. And now all of a sudden we're starting to hear about this. So, you know, it, 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 it is, Kind of a a really eerie thing to be happening, especially around the conversation that we're having right now, but and also with where we are in sort of the cycle of Canada and like as an economy and as a housing market and as a, you know, it just is very, very wild. It
1: is. It's Uh, it's shocking. And to hear, you know, we had a, you know, at no one's expense, uh, obviously, but we had a bit of a chuckle about it because we're like, this is, this is crazy. You know, everyone was making videos about these two people that had sold a house when, the owners were out of town and it made the news and it was, it was the hot topic for a few weeks. Uh, you know, again, I went on CTV and spoke about it, but to hear a, a professional that's saying this, this is stuff is happening at a, a rate we've never seen before is definitely concerning. Um, as, as concerning as the next one here, increasing cost of living relative to decreasing quality of life. Um, You know, I can't comment on how much decreasing quality of life overall is, but let's say strictly from an economic standpoint, the quality of your financial life has definitely been hurt no matter who you are, even if you're in a, you know, a nice 1.5% fixed rate. Other things, you know, your groceries, your milk, your bread, your gas, all of that is more expensive than ever. And increasing cost of living doesn't matter if you're a homeowner or a renter that has also gone up. Um, Dan, why don't you take the next two?
0: Yeah, so we got political dissent. So political extremes are evolving or becoming much louder. You get, you know, one-hour lineups at open houses for student rentals. Housing is oversubscribed. People can't find it. Right.
1: Yep. And then, uh, and then we see the the slowly kind of disappearing of the middle class, kind of being being erased. Right. Is it? Is the? Is there such a thing as a real middle class anymore?
0: Is that the missing middle that everybody's been talking about in the housing?
1: I mean, it does seem like middle class is becoming equally as absent as missing middle housing.
0: You know, just reading that that sort of list that we went through, it kind of makes me think about that book, The Fourth Turning, which I think they're supposed to be writing a, a new, like an updated version of it this year. Yeah. Um, And it could add, you know, thinking about it as like social cycles could add another, uh, another layer of complexity to this discussion. I don't want to get too co- complex. I kind of just want to present a jumping off point, a couple, a couple of different places that we can start for those people who want to research cyclical phenomena and what happens behind the scenes. But basically, the fourth turning almost talks about social cycles or turnings. Can you read these for yeah, me? Yeah, for next? sure.
1: Why don't I do one and two? You take, uh, you take three and four here. First one we've got is the high which is the era of building, and we saw that between 1946 and 1964. Society was confident with where it was and where it wanted to go collectively. And for the most part, governments and institutions were trusted, or at least more trusted than they were in today's day and age. From 1964 to 1984, we see the awakening period. Yeah, that sounds about right. 60s, 70s being, you know, awakened. (laughs) Do with that what you will. Institutions come under attack. Distrust against authority becomes a bit more of a popular mindset. And the coming generation rebels against the cultural beliefs and morals of that once large majority.
0: Then you move into the unraveling or the harvest and separation, which is 1984 to 2008. Institutions are are weak and distrusted. Uh, Political polarity starts cresting. And then finally you get into a crisis, an era of destruction, which is, you know, is is that sort of 2009 to present based on what their their theory is, this social cycle theory. And it is interesting because the way that they describe it is sort of – each human life is, you know, eighty years, and so each cycle would be a quarter of a of a human life. And the reason is because each, you know, every twenty years, let's say that the past generation dies off, and the new generation is is leading. And the generation who's kind of leading, let's call it, like you know, right now would be maybe baby boomers as an example. They have their own distinct set of, um, you know, characteristics and values, and and so those those are what sort of govern. The the society and they're also what create these these cycles these these periods. Um, They actually have names for each of the the different you know that there are four uh, characteristics of generations that that kind of correlate to these. Um, But during a period of crisis, institutions would be torn down and rebuilt. Civic authority would revive cultural expression finds community a pur- purpose and people begin to locate themselves as members of a larger group you know we start thinking about ourselves as as part of one big whole And this all lends itself really nicely to the discussion of, you know, the thing I mentioned before, which is the political business cycle.
1: Yeah. Now, again, you know, on the show, we don't get political. We try to keep politics out of it, but this is going to be discussion and explanation of how politics are directly intertwined with business cycles. So
0: yeah, it's really more, it is, it's just more theoretical. Like, I know you can understand, okay, like. In, you know, there, there's components left, right. What the, you know, what their values are. We know what those things are: inflation versus growth. There's there are different pieces that we're going to discuss here by just like talking about political business cycle and the types of cycles. But it, it you know, they're per, perceptually you can see that they move in, in this almost mechanical way. Right. So there's no. You know, it isn't really a political discussion. It's almost like a theoretical discussion. And historically, the cycles that we're going to describe, describe exist. Yeah.
1: No, love it. Um, the theories of political business cycle are based on several assumptions. The first being it is generally agreed by economists that there is a short term trade off between the levels of utilization and employment in the economy and the rate of inflation. We're seeing that right now. The second is that assumed that politicians are rational actors, prioritizing their short-term...
0: Just kidding, no politics. (laughs) (laughs) Careful,
1: but yeah, come on. What they say, don't just assume, right? Um, So again, assuming that politicians are rational actors, prioritizing their short-term political objectives.
0: Uh, Ah, there it is.
1: Okay, so... In the run-up to elections, they will trade inflation for lower levels of employment. So slight manipulation of the system. I don't care what kind of what your political views are. That happens on both sides. Third, those who study the political business cycle often think that there is a single best policy solution in a given situation that is for general interest. That solution leads to the natural equilibrium between inflation and unemployment. Very often, the understanding of such equilibrium is counter-inflational. Now, there are two streams of theories in the literature of the political business cycle theory. The first partisan theories stress the difference between, uh, sorry, difference of fiscal and monetary preferences between parties, whereas leftist parties are expected to boost real economic activity aka unemployment, where right-leaning parties are thought to focus on fighting inflation. A second set of models concentrates on the manipulation of policy instruments by politicians who seek to get reelected. No surprise there. Wild stuff.
0: No, I mean, and and like, you know, you can see it in the political conversation right now as like everybody is talking about inflation or, you know, unemployment or the economy or whatever it is. And so politicians, you can see them latching on to either side of the discussion to start forming their bases for the next elections that are coming up. The, so in the statistical studies of cycles modern economic history has recorded a number of periods of difficult times often called recessions or depressions during which the business economy has uh, saw a, a you know big decline in stock markets commercial bankruptcies company failing unemployment issues with the banking systems and these crises were looked upon as pathological in uh, incidents or catastrophes in economic life rather than as a normal part of it. The notion of a cycle implies a different view. The following examples, so two types of cycles that we're going to um, represent some of the attempts that theorists have made to explain and predict these business cycles. So there's a short one and there's a long one. So the, the short one is the juggler cycle. The first authority to explore economic cycles as period periodically recurring phenomena was the French physician and statistician Clement Juggler, who... In nineteen or sorry, eighteen sixty, identified cycles based on a period period of eight to eleven years. Uh, scholars who developed Juggler's approach further distinguished three phases of or periods of a typical cycle: prosperity, crisis, and liquidation. So the so called Juggler cycle has often been regarded as the true or major economic cycle, but several several smaller cycles have been also identified. Not probably not worth t- touching on because it you know a little bit specific stuff. Um, but there are longer cycles as well. Uh, Nick, and there's a guy who talks about this a lot on, on Twitter spaces that you are saying, Oh, we got to get this guy on. But he, you know, I mean, that stuff can scare people a little bit. It is pretty bearish stuff, but there's worth, it's worth just like analyzing, okay, the existence of these things. So you were interested in what this guy had yeah. to say. So tell me about, tell me about. For, well, for
1: sure. For, I first want to say that uh, I didn't realize the jugular cycle or juggler cycle was, uh, you know, named after a, a French stat statistician. Um, I thought it was like getting punched in the jugular, but, uh, probably makes oh, a bit more I sense.
0: Thought, I thought it was like a juggler, like they're juggling stuff uh, and then <laughs> the balls go up and down. So it's like making Listen, a cycle. they all work,
1: I guess. Um, yeah, look, I, I, I mean, I find the long wave stuff really interesting. And again, um. You know, maybe we'll have him on, maybe we won't. I think some of his stuff doesn't really apply to exactly what we talk about on the show. But I love history and I think we can learn a ton from history. I mean, Dan, if you go back to our first episode here, it was about history. It's, you know, how has Canadian real estate performed in rising rate environments in the past? Well, what can we look at? You know, let's go look at that past, analyze it, analyze the last four five, ten five, 10 recessions that we've had and extract as much information as we can. Longwave just does that, but he does it over the course, you know, we talk in, you know, maybe five years or a decade. You know, this recession will be over in twenty-four months. He's looking at, at cycles that last a hundred years.
0: So, and and also like looking at so many different assets, which we, I just am not smart enough to do, to be honest with you. But he's talking like commodities and bonds and T-bills and all these different things. And it's like, look, I can just do. Give me yeah. houses. I'll do houses for We're you. We're simple guys and, that and like doing places. <laughs> yeah. And we yeah, and we so we did it in episode one, and it's. House prices. What happens to house prices? How do they cycle? And we've discussed these things. We can we can look at history. Um, so the one that you're going to mention, the long wave, that was I think coined by a guy named Kondratiev. I, I erased his name. Okay, thank you. To, I just panicked know it's for you here because I couldn't I couldn't I couldn't figure <laughs> out how to say it properly. So I'm going to take a stab at it rather than trying to make you pronounce. Hard I stuff
1: appreciate again. that. Uh, okay, so cycles of greater duration than juggler, which we remember is about uh, eight to eleven years. Uh, have also been studied. And for example, the construction industry was found to have cycles of 17 to 18 years in the United States and roughly 20 to 22 years in England. Measuring longer term business cycles involves the study of long waves. Show us that within major Western countries during the 150 years from about 1790 to 1940, identified three periods characterized by slow expansions and contractions of economic activity, each averaging 50 years in length.
0: So you got a 10-year cycle riding on a 50-year cycle, waves on waves on waves. <laughs>
1: Long and short waves. And if we were writing this, you uh, would totally be putting up an exhibit of Pimp My Ride, which...
0: <laughs> the meme, yeah, you, know yeah. what I mean. you know me too well. Maybe they <laughs> I don't, I don't know if that one's going to translate
1: uh, well on... Uh, but. People don't no. like our jokes, anyways. We're we're
0: we're. Oh, it's the waves on waves on waves. It could be an inception meme as well, right? It's a wave inside a wave inside a wave, oh, like waveception. Yes. Which you know, and if you want, if you actually want to see a photo of what that looks like, just look on the cover of Ray Dalio's book, Changing World Order. It's literally like a wave of waves. You probably learned this stuff in like remember I mean, like grade eight. Remember when you had the TI eighty three calculator and you just like plug stuff in and make those like sine, Sokotoa, all that stuff like those waves. I just I just wrote eight zero zero eight
1: five. That's all I did. <laughs> On my Texas and, uh, instrument,
0: <laughs> and and that is, I think that is an ec- excellent segue into our final topic, which is credit cycles. And the guy who I would say is more of my favorite, I think he's really, really made credit cycles a sexy thing lately. And that's Ray Dalio. And credit cycles are important for housing because we we buy houses with credit. And so Nick, what's a credit cycle?
1: Thought you'd never ask. A credit cycle describes the phases of access to credit. By borrowers, based on the economic expansion and contraction of that time, it is one of the the major economic cycles in a modern economy, and the cycle length tends to be longer than the business cycle because of the time required for weakened fundamentals of a business to show up.
0: So, the key takeaways on on a credit cycle from Investopedia and from Ray Dalio. Are and Dalio he does a like I've mentioned this a ton of times on the podcast, but how the economic machine works on YouTube. If you want to get a good understanding for how this, how these cycles happen, how economic cycles happen, and how credit cycles happen, there's visuals. It's like a cartoon. It's actually really interesting and engaging to watch. I watch it probably once a quarter, and it's just just great stuff. So if you want a crash course on how that whole thing looks, but the, the big thing that he mentions early on, there's like these little animated dudes, and they're like. This guy goes to the bank and he takes money out and he's borrowing money from his future self. You you get something today, right? So you're doing the opposite of deferring gratification. You get gratification today, but you have to pay for it in the future. But you also have to pay it plus interest. And when credit is cheap, people borrow a lot. And when it gets more expensive, they start trying to pay it back because it's like, oh, shit, this is getting expensive. I got to get rid of this. And to do this, they have to spend less, and this means less consumption, and as consumption decreases, you see a decline in the economy, and that's how you get into that cycle. So there's actual mechanical elements here that create these recurring phases of, an, of easy and tight borrowing and in, in lending in the economy, and a credit cycle is one of the major economic cycles identified by economists in the modern economy. And it's literally just as easy as looking at, oh, debt was cheap, people piled it on, Was there a period of time recently when debt was cheap,
1: Nick? Uh, I have such a short memory, I can't remember.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So, yeah. So And the average credit cycle tends to be longer than the business cycle because it takes time for a weakening of corporate fundamentals or property values to show up in the economy. And now we're kind of in that period of time where just, just recently, well, just as early or today, so Fe- Valentine's Day, February fourteenth. Nick and I are, are bad boyfriends doing a recording here on, on Happy Valentine's, Valentine's Day, but Day, babe. U- the U.S. CPI numbers came out, or U.S. job numbers mm-hmm. came out, and the can and now the Canadian bond yields jumped up to like four percent. Man, fixed rates, fixed interest rates are going to be like in the sixes in a month, like. If if that keeps up, right? If bond if if government of Canada bond yields stay. And a couple of episodes ago, I talked about why bond yields are in control of the buying power of the market right now because fixed rates are based on bond yields, and bond yields are are in fixed rates are lower than variable rates. So now now the market was pricing in rate two rate cuts by the end of the year. Before the bond the you know if you looked at the bond market now it's cut pricing in zero rate cuts by the end of the year. And so we're in this position where we're realizing that. Several years of cheap credit creates this compounding effect and it makes the economy run super hot and now people are still these businesses still have a ton of cash and they're just pumping it out and hiring people like crazy and the economy's still resilient and strong but that means that we've got we've got to crank up the interest mm-hmm. rate and that's that's where things get a little bit troublesome I think for a lot of a lot of market participants so yeah, agreed. Look, that's t- that's my two time, cents. Will,
1: time will tell. Um and that 2 cents might be worth 1 cent or less by the end of the year if we uh keep going this way. Before we yeah. uh Dan, before we close off because this has been not a traditional episode, a bit more high level kind of, you know, very um very e- exploratory in in uh, in just looking at market cycles, economic cycles and how they're impacting uh Canada and and us the Canadian real estate investors. I want to go back to Canadians only 68.5% of Canadians own a home. What do you think that means for the Canadian real estate investor now? And is there an opportunity there? Is it too late? Is it perfect timing? Is it too early? What does that look like?
0: I think that if you look at countries that are further along in their housing economy, and they're and they're further, they've been doing capitalism longer. Like some of these people have been doing capitalism. So let's say for Germany, than Switzerland, for instance, existed. right?
1: Germany fifty percent, right. yeah. and, and Switzerland at forty-one percent.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So let's let's look at the landscape of housing, just houses, not even commercial real estate or anything, because it can that can conflate it a little bit, especially when you look at the U.S. But in Canada, housing is right now very much owned by individuals and even rental property is very much owned by individuals. And now you're starting to hear things like core developments buying wanting to buy billions of dollars worth of real estate. And you know, BlackRock buying or Blackstone, sorry, buying a bunch of single family detached homes all over the United States. In in a lot of these other countries, homeownership was a multi generational thing. And fam you know, people would live at home until they went and started their own new household formation, or they would take over the home and the par- parents would maybe move in, into a small suite there. And um, in urban markets, people primarily rented. When you're young, you went out and got a job in the city and you would go be in the city close to all that action, close to work, close to potential mates. And and then you would go back out to that, the family kind of homestead, very traditional. Like I'm, I'm oversimplifying it, but um, what this means to me is that, you know, in those countries now, a lot of that, that, the bigger denser real estate is owned by institutions and in large corporations and and investors and we we haven't reached the point where you you're getting to the point where i would call it high investment ownership i think you're starting to get mm-hmm. there and and i think that so you know for us as real estate investors in canada we do we want to get on that wave as canada transitions very much into a renter's economy because it seems like that's the direction that it's heading you know I don't think we're selling the canadian dream or the american dream of home ownership in this country anymore. It's just it's it's out of reach for the next two generation unless something drastic changes, which it doesn't necessarily like not to be cynical, it doesn't necessarily seem like that's going to happen. Unless it, house prices would literally have to come off like another 25% to make it affordable for the average canadian. So okay, we're in a market where home ownership is unaffordable then Do we enter into a renter's economy? Probably. What does that mean? That means that a growing portion of the population wants to rent. And so that means that the rents start to climb. You do politically start to get more protections for tenants, things like that. But rents will start to climb. And so if you can get into assets early and you kind of get along that long-term trajectory of being somebody who is one of the the investors or institutional owners of property – as that home rate starts to dwindle the 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 scary part for people in my profession that, that they should be thinking about is well they have a job in 10 years or 20 years or 30 years when because your home rate is dwindled now all of a sudden people aren't buying and selling properties all the time you really only have a leasing market left yeah and so that's that's kind of the interesting second order effect
1: chat gpt is going to take all those jobs anyways
0: <laughs> yeah, I mean, Chat ChatGPT does write exceptionally good property descriptions. You know,
1: I might take a couple of weeks off and just get ChatGPT to start writing some episodes for us. See what happens. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah well I, I mean i just saw those like videos of joe rogan like the fake supplement videos yeah, like the scary I think were, like wiener pills or something scary like that stuff. And anyway like but well you could just get a fake we can maybe how do how do our listeners even know that this is us speaking right now how do they know it's not a chat GPT <laughs> written episode and a deep fake recording it and on that note whether <laughs> who knows who this is
1: signing off it could be nick and it could be dan it could be two ai bots but On a serious note, guys, thanks so much for listening. We hope you got value out of this kind of cool, unique episode. If there's anything specifically you want to hear, any other unique stuff, um, let us know. Reach out to the show. Uh, We love to hear from you. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next time. The Canadian Real Estate Investor Podcast is for entertainment purposes only, and it is not financial advice. Nick Hill is a mortgage agent with Premier Mortgage Center and a partner in the G&H Mortgage Group. License number 10317, agent license M21004037.
0: Daniel Foch is a real estate broker licensed with Rare Real Estate, a member of the Canadian Real Estate Association, the Toronto Real Estate Board, and the Ontario Real Estate Association.